It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome, everybody. I'm Guy Benson, your host, Fox News contributor, political editor at townhall.com. We are always happy to have you here every day, every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day. That's GuyBensonShow.com. On the program this afternoon, here's the lineup. Howie Kurtz will join us. In mere minutes, he's going to weigh in on the Chris Cuomo scandal at CNN. Just keeps getting worse for him and, by extension, his network. Does he survive some new revelations about what he was doing behind the scenes on behalf of his disgraced brother, the former governor of New York? We'll get into all of that with Howie. Dr. Mark Siegel will join us in the next hour on the new variant, Omicron. The vaccines, there's sort of mixed signals on whether the vaccines are expected to be effective against the new variant. We're getting different answers from different people. Most of the projections seem to be good, but not all of them. So we will have Dr. Siegel help us sort that out. Matt Finn, our colleague here at Fox News, he will join us from Chicago to bring us the latest in the trial of Jussie Smollett and the fake hate crime that he perpetrated on himself. New details there, and actually something that I just learned from the opening statements yesterday, a little fact that I had not heard before. I will share that with you as well. And in our final hour today, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican South Carolina. We have a lot to get to with her. She's fresh back from a trip to Asia, the Far East. She served Thanksgiving dinner to the troops. And then she and some of her colleagues were in Taiwan, a trip that the Chinese Communist Party tried to have canceled. They failed. The trip went on as planned. We will ask her about that. Plus, she has quite a spat going on right now with one of her Republican colleagues in the House. We will ask her about that as well. Fox News alert as we begin the show. I'll get to stats in a second, but this just coming in. Officials in Michigan Oxford, Michigan, saying that three students are dead, six more wounded in a school shooting in that city in Michigan. There's a suspect in custody, a teenage gunman, apparently, and just an unbelievably awful story. And our hearts go out to the loved ones of those who were killed. Three dead in that school shooting in Michigan. We pray that everyone else pulls through. Let's bring you stats on COVID as we always do. COVID cases all in in the United States, 48.4 million. That's a lowball estimate. The death toll in the United States, Americans dying with or of COVID, 779,293. The Dow is way down today, 
down over 600 points, 602 points right now. It's at 34,532 as I speak. And part of that is due to some statements earlier from the Fed chair regarding inflation that we will mention later in the program. But the markets are not happy for, uh, in this case, good reason. Pretty pessimistic view from the, uh, the Fed chair. Also, there are these ongoing jitters over Omicron and the variant and the uncertainty there. So you've got some factors combining for what is uh, shaping up to be a pretty brutal day up on Wall Street. As I begin the show today, a subject that we tackled last night in one of our segments on Gutfeld, I was on the panel, it was always fun, was the latest from Disney. And I've talked about Disney before in this context. I've talked about Nike as well in this context. Unfortunately, there's a long list of American companies, organizations, institutions, prominent people who fall into this category, category being people willing to do China's bidding, people willing to be complicit in massive human rights abuses for their own financial reasons. What drives me crazy about companies like Nike and Disney and others is the amount of preening that they do domestically when it comes to social justice or whatever other topics or buzzwords they want to use, right? They make it very well known that they are very progressive and these companies, you know, stand behind this movement or stand up to this, you know, latest issue, You have some of these companies putting out statements. CEO of Disney, for example, was attacking pro-life anti-abortion laws in certain states, saying, I'm not sure we can do business in that state anymore. So that's part of Disney's set of supposed values. They said we're going to withhold contributions to certain lawmakers getting into January 6th politics. Because they're so committed to democracy, you understand. And look, I'm on the record about what I think about what happened on January 6th. I don't need to rehash it. I've been very clear. However, if you care about democracy, and that's your big stance that you're going to make publicly, to then do business the way that you do in China, not a democracy at all, quite the opposite, uh, there's a tension there, is there not? And of course, with Disney, just like Nike, they have shoveled piles of cash at a guy like Colin Kaepernick, who has depicted the police as pigs, who says that our whole system is sort of irreparably racist and needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Talking about the country, the criminal justice system, everything. He says July 4th is... A white supremacy celebration. Right, that's Colin Kaepernick. Those are his values. And Disney gave him a huge amount of money. Nike made him a huge spokesman. Nike also kind of let him have veto power over products that were a little too pro-America for his liking. But when it comes to China, these companies do what China demands. Because it's a big market for them. So they don't want to anger the communists in Beijing. So 
while they preen and posture and virtue signal here at home, all of that alleged ostensible commitment just vanishes in the face of any pressure or even potential pressure from the Chinese Communist Party. They have one audience here at home and they pander aggressively. They make it very clear people who might disagree with some of the stuff, they are not interested in your business. At least they don't care at all about offending you or upsetting you, right? Because they're brave and they take a stand for what's right or whatever. But, you know, look, if you're just going to have to look the other way on genocide halfway across the world, well, so be it. Think of the uh, think of the profits that are at stake. So with that wind up, this is a story that we discussed on Gutfeld last night. I tweeted about it the other day. The Disney Plus streaming service in Hong Kong has removed an episode of The Simpsons. So they have the catalog of The Simpsons. Many, many episodes, and there is an episode absent or censored in Hong Kong in which the Simpsons, the family in that episode, they go to China and they go to Tiananmen Square and they have a few different references to that massacre that happened at Tiananmen Square where the Chinese Communist Party massacred a bunch of protesters, peaceful demonstrators, students. There was never an official death toll released because that was also censored. Experts believe it was in perhaps the thousands. Just a slaughter. The Simpsons decided to make a statement against that, right? Against a massacre. But because they are very touchy about that, they don't like negative elements of their history, really things that they're doing now. They don't like people mentioning those things, whether it's the genocide currently against the Uyghurs, Tiananmen Square massacre, you know, the various purges. The list goes on. Beijing doesn't like it. They aggressively censor it internally and they pressure outside companies and institutions or organizations to fall in line and assist in the censorship. Or else. This is how they operate. And in many, many cases, depressingly many cases, Western companies, including woke progressive Western companies, just say, oh, okay, and they do it. Sometimes they do it enthusiastically. Like, I would like to know, did Disney remove this episode in Hong Kong, memory hole it, because they got a phone call from one of the censors in Beijing? Chairman Xi's unhappy, please take it down, or you're not going to be able to make your money in China? Is that what happened? Or was this preemptive? Did they do this on their own volition? See, China, look what we're doing on your behalf in advance. You're welcome. Disney's the same company, of course, that thanked communist China for allowing them to film Mulan, the live action version of Mulan, in Xinjiang, where the genocide is happening. They thanked the Chinese Communist Party of Xinjiang for the privilege of filming their movie in the genocide province. I mean, I don't even know what else to say about that. Disney has proven their willingness, if not enthusiasm, to be obsequious genocide enablers. I I don't know what else, how else you can describe it. 
If you're not willing to take a stand and, in fact, do exactly the opposite, you are complicit, you are enabling, and that is the latest example of what Disney is doing. And look, there's a long history of totalitarian regimes, communists and otherwise, waging war on the truth, waging war on their own history, trying to airbrush things that they don't like out of existence. What feels newer is the willingness of Western companies and other entities to be a party to that censorship, to help in that effort. I know the theory of opening up to China and getting access to the market and and deepening our financial and economic ties and all that when they're not ripping off our technology and stealing a bunch of IP, of course. But one of the theories behind that was, see, once they're integrated into the world, we'll have more leverage over them, They'll experience more of our values and they'll start to democratize or liberalize. And what seems to be happening is the opposite. What seems to be happening is they got our institutions addicted to their money and now the leverage is theirs. An evil, communist, abusive regime. Another story I saw from Axios, an exclusive from Axios, Airbnb, great app, I use it. They are allowing their platform to be used to host rentals in Xinjiang, specifically on land owned by a group sanctioned for their connection to the genocide. I mean, is that going to stand at Airbnb? And if not, if they take a stand and say, we're going to sever ties here, might they risk market share in China. That's the fear. That's why so many of these companies know what they're doing is wrong. Do it anyway. And they try to make up to it with, you know, wake, uh, I should say, make up for it with woke indulgences here at home. Someone who is fortunately not in this category is Enos Cantor. We've talked about him a few times. He's the center for the Boston Celtics in the NBA. I'm not an NBA guy at all for a number of reasons, but I really like him. He's got stones. He's got moxie. He appreciates freedom. He's not a hypocrite. He loves America. He's now Turkish-American because yesterday he took the citizenship oath and became a U.S. citizen. Here's the end of it, cut 17. Did I take this obligation freely? That I take this obligation freely. Without making any mental reservation. Without any mental reservation. Or purpose of evasion. Or purpose of evasion. So help me God. So help me God. All right, congratulations. You're now a citizen of the United States. So I appreciate it. And he waved a little American flag to celebrate. He tweeted, I am proud to be an American, greatest nation in the world the land of the free and the home of the brave, and then an American flag. What a contrast to what many of his peers say and write the way that they act about this country and our flag. He's not from here originally. He wanted in. He wanted to be a part of the American family, and I am delighted that he has joined. Welcome to the American family, sir. And I would call him Enos Cantor, but he has actually now legally changed his name to Enos Cantor Freedom. 
We love to see it. We love to have you, Mr. Freedom. Welcome. It's The Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Tuesday. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I mentioned at the top that we've got Congresswoman Nancy Mace coming up. She was on this uh, Codel to Taiwan, and the Chinese were not happy about it. They were kind of sending threatening messages saying, you better not do this trip. Please cancel. you got to cancel right now. And all the members of Congress correctly flipped them the bird and went anyway. We'll talk to her about that trip coming up in our final hour. It's not just that kind of diplomatic pressure. It's not just this financial and economic coercion and leverage that we see China flexing. There's also sort of kinetic traditional military threats at play. So Josh Rogan at the Washington Post has this headline, Space Force General says China and Russia attack U.S. space assets, quote, every day. He writes, when Russia blows up a satellite in space with a missile, as it did this month, or when China tests a new hypersonic missile, as it did last month, The ongoing arms race in space leaps into the news. But in between these Sputnik-like moments, outside the public's view, the United States and its adversaries are battling in space every day. General David Thompson says the threats are really growing and expanding every single day. It's an evolution of activity that's been happening for a long time. We're really at a point now where there's a whole host of ways that our space systems can be threatened. And he said these threats occur and these attacks occur, quote, every single day. Both China and Russia regularly attacking U.S. satellites with non-kinetic means, including lasers, radio frequency jammers and other cyber attacks. They are looking for weaknesses. This is obviously disturbing and alarming. I hope that our powers that be are focused on it. Seems like a lot of our people in charge are focused on very stupid things most of the time as we fight each other about, you know, pronouns or whatever. Eye on the ball. The Chinese and the Russians mean us harm. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. We are joined now in the studio by Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz, Fox News Channel, every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern. And he's got his podcast, too, Media Buzz Meter. 
And you can check him out on Twitter at Howard Kurtz. You can check out the podcast at foxnewspodcast.com. Howie, great to see you again. I'm feeling overdressed, but I was just on the air. (laughs) (laughs) I'm as radio man. uh, And it was a travel day for me. I actually do have my jacket and tie over there. It's like, uh, you know, in case of emergency, break Break glass. glass. Yeah. So we obviously have to start this conversation about Chris Cuomo and CNN. We already knew some things that I think were troubling. Ethically problematic, troubling is your word, I agree, about Chris Cuomo's conduct in the context of and vis-a-vis his brother and the scandals that his brother was battling as governor of New York. He's, of course, resigned from that position. We knew some things, and they were bad. There are now some new revelations coming from text messages that reveal much deeper, I would say, ethical problems here. What have we learned in the last day or so? There's text messages. There's his own testimony uh, to the state attorney general's office. And what we have learned is that he was knee-deep. He, Chris Cuomo was practically on his brother's defense team, constantly texting uh, governor's top aides, offering advice. And here's what's troubling. Uh, here he is, CNN's top-rated host, which may help explain why nothing's happened to him so far, um, using sort of his street cred as a cable news anchor, to call up other journalists and, quote, sources to try to gather intel on the sexual harassment allegations, who's got what, when's it being published, and in a couple of cases, Guy, uh, appearing to try to gather information about the accusers themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, all of which you should not be doing as a working journalist. There's a few things to really delve into there. One, you kind of glanced on it. One thing that I want to talk about is the extent to which he was very aggressively involved in the PR effort. Because the way that he had kind of portrayed it previously was, yes, I was on some of these, you know, phone calls and, you know, uh, we were having conference calls about certain things, and it's sort of like a passive participant or whatever. No, no, he was drafting statements that appeared almost verbatim in some cases under his brother's name, all while portraying himself on the air as a journalist Meanwhile, his network is covering the story. He's not because of a conflict of interest, although that conflict of interest never stopped him from the glowing positive press, of course. Well, never stopped CNN from allowing him to do the Cuomo Brothers show. Exactly. So CNN not only allowed, they kind of encouraged and fostered that dynamic when it was good times for the Cuomo Brothers, bad times for the Cuomo Brothers, and the elder in particular. It's like, oh, well, we can't cover that on this show because there's a conflict of interest. That never made sense. He was drafting statements. He was, as you say, constantly texting some of these top aides. And then it's the digging and sniffing around using his journalistic, uh, not just job description and title, but his position to basically gather intel for the political operation of his brother when it comes to other journalists and what they were trying to report. So Ronan Farrow makes an appearance in some of these text messages. Uh, Politico makes an appearance. What do we know? He was he was trying to get not just information about who had what, but, you know, when allegations yeah. might drop. In the case of Ronan Farrow, for example, who was widely known was going to drop a big investigative piece about Governor Cuomo in The New Yorker, uh, he was friendly with Ronan, but he didn't want to go him directly. So he went to a journalist friend of Ronan Farrow, was able to report back to the governor's top aide, well, the piece isn't running tomorrow, and he doesn't appear to have any more other than this one accuser who had already uh, gone public. That's a good sign, said Chris Cuomo. Mm. Uh, also checked out rumors about Politico. Uh, also was... Um, 
not only drafting statements for his brother, Governor Cuomo, uh, but critiquing and criticizing statements that was put out. For example, Charlotte Bennett was one of the high-profile accusers went on CBS. Um, Chris Cuomo texted the governor's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, and said uh, that should never have been put out. What he should have said was he should have apologized to her. So it, it seemed like he was so deeply involved that he was, in effect, part of the team. And when he apologized on the air last August, he said, I never made any calls to the press about my brother's situation. Well, that is flatly contradicted by some of these new documents that show that, yes, he did repeatedly. Right. He was trying to gather intel, not just about what other journalists were digging up, to then feed that back to help with, you know, sort of preemptive PR, damage control, whatever. He was also, one of the texts that was kind of disturbing to me was, and I'm paraphrasing it, I might have a lead. On the wedding girl. On the wedding girl. Yeah, the wedding girl was a woman who just three days earlier had told the New York Times that the governor had behaved sexually inappropriately to her at a wedding reception. So he's got a lead on the wedding girl. In the case of another accuser, I have some information. He forwarded some information about what happened to her in college. I, we don't know the details of these things. And so uh, this is a huge— like rapid response. Yeah, you know. Uh, the CNN anchor, and they say he's not an opinion host. He's a news anchor. That is their well, conceit. He, he's primetime. He is an opinion host. He was an anchor at ABC, and he was an anchor in his early career at CNN. But here's the dilemma for CNN and for Jeff Zucker, who's very close to Cuomo. They haven't done anything to him so far, no discipline whatsoever. So now CNN, the, 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 the revelations now are so much worse than what we knew previously, so damaging, that CNN was forced to say something. How so, much worse? Uh, Ten times worse, maybe a hundred times worse in terms of the magnitude of the effort. So CNN puts out this lame, tepid statement saying, well, you know, we're going to review this and we're going to have conversations and we're going to have clarity. Not a syllable of we regret the appearance here or anything like that. So I don't know for all the pressure. You have some uh, critics of Chris Cuomo coming out and saying he should either be resigned or should be dumped, including liberal journalists, including somebody running for the Atlantic magazine who feel like the situation has been become untenable. Rolling Stone, which has some checkered past of journalistic ethics, right. they're saying this looks horrible. The, people are saying, I don't see how he survives this in his position. I've had people text me, do you think he survives? Yeah. I don't know. It would seem on its face that there were so many betrayals here of journalistic ethics. You also have to wonder, let's say you're someone else working over at CNN. Maybe you were you were covering the Andrew Cuomo story. Did your colleague Chris Cuomo ever ply you for information in your journalistic pursuits in order to feed it back as part of this sort of surreptitious rapid response political operation. That's also, I think, a problem here. I just don't know if CNN's in a position with their ratings being in the shape that they are mm. to dispatch their top rated guy. Not that he's, you know, doing gangbusters, but he's beating anyone else on that network. Right. Well, there's no evidence that Chris Cuomo went to anybody at CNN. In fact, in his testimony, he said that would have gotten out very quickly if I had done this. In other words, that would have been dumb. Uh, but it is a major league dilemma for the reasons that you cite. And look, I've known Chris Cuomo a long time. And of course, the brothers are very close and everybody assumed he was counseling Andrew Cuomo privately. And then there was the news, as you said, about the strategy calls. But this was so pervasive, crossed so many red lines. Uh, is so troubling. What I will say is that if any other journalist had so extensively helped a political sibling and then new evidence contradicted what he had said, that person would be gone. That's the issue, right? It's not just what he did. What do they say? The, the cliche, the cover-up is worse than the crime. If he had just copped to everything and said, these are all the things that I did and these are the reasons that I did them and I'm sorry— 
the story might be over. Mm-hmm. But he came out with the sort of half apology. Then he says, we're never going to talk about it again. Well, now we're talking about it again because all these additional revelations came out contradicting some of the previous things that he said. So it kind of snowballs. Then, I mean, just the substance of it is worse as well. I won't necessarily ask you to make a prediction if he'll survive this. In your opinion, and you don't have to weigh in if, if you don't want to, in your opinion, based on your long career in media, should he survive this? Well, I think that it's a tough call for Jeff Zucker for the reasons that you cited. And I think that if nothing happens to Chris Cuomo, remember, there's a continuum of things that can happen. You can be suspended. Maybe you voluntarily take a leave. In fact, it was suggested by CNN when this first broke, when suddenly Governor Cuomo was under uh, these accusations by what turned out to be 11 women, that he take a leave of absence. Go help your brother. Will he understand? And then come back later. He didn't do that. He probably should have done that. So what I'll say is if CNN does nothing, then it's going to be very hard for CNN to defend uh, whether or not one person, because he's the biggest name there and so forth, is getting special treatment. Um, I don't know whether pressure will build. It kind of depends on whether this is a one- or two-day story. I think a lot of journalists are personally offended by this. He was getting kicked around on The View, very liberal women who like Andrew Cuomo, uh, because they feel like, you know, maybe there's another sort of – he violated the rules of the journalistic fraternity by getting information from other journalists and then feeding it back in real time to the governor's top eight and obviously I'm sure in conversations with Andrew Cuomo himself. Meanwhile, I saw this tweet earlier today from a New York Post reporter, the bureau chief in Albany, Bernadette Hogan. She says, uh, this was just a few hours ago, during his Sirius XM podcast today, Chris Cuomo says Andrew Cuomo, quote, had to resign for three reasons. One, Democrats turned on him. Two, GOP hated him. Three, media never really liked him. No mention of the 11 women, no mention of the nursing home scandal and the COVID death cover-up, which to me is far worse than the other stuff, which is still very serious. That was not, I guess, on the list for Chris Cuomo about the reasons that his brother had to resign. Here's what I don't understand, because I I forgot that he had a radio show, Chris Cuomo, but apparently he does. I thought his position was he was not commenting on this publicly because it wouldn't be appropriate. He wasn't going to talk about his brother, right? That's... His CNN position, does he have another rule on the radio show? He he can sound off on Andrew Cuomo on radio, but then when he shows up in the anchor chair at CNN, that's where he's exempt from talking about it? I just don't understand what the standards are here at all. Well, it might be a precursor to the idea that he will address it tonight, perhaps, and maybe they're all trying to figure out what the PR strategy is. I mean, the irony here is for as hard as Chris Cuomo was fighting for his brother— um, at the end, when the position was completely untenable, when Andrew Cuomo was going to be impeached by the Democratic-controlled assembly, uh, Chris Cuomo did tell his brother that he had run out of options, that he should resign. But it's apparently for tactical reasons. Because remember, Andrew Cuomo says, look, I'm sorry if I offended anybody. I denied groping anybody. You know, he, he tried to maintain. And there's also fascinating 11 hours of video testimony with former Governor Andrew Cuomo that was released and some people are feasting on. Uh, at one point, he debates the definition of girlfriend, reminding me of the Clinton's is. famous, Clinton's famous uh, yeah, is, grand is. jury testimony. Yeah, um, uh, I, I don't think this goes away. Uh, regardless of how CNN handles it, it is a cloud over Chris Cuomo, and that's unfortunate. He was put in a box where he had to choose between his family and his job, and unfortunately, he kind of chose to skirt the rules when it came to his journalistic responsibilities. Shifting gears, Howie, there is a lot of coverage, of course, about the 
Omicron variant, this new variant, and we had a doctor on yesterday, Dr. Manning. We've got a doctor coming up in the next hour on this show, Dr. Mark Siegel, two of our colleagues here at Fox. We're talking about this story a lot. We're also trying to put it into context. I have had it up to here with some of the panic over COVID. And look, if this were looking really bad, and this is a very dangerous looking variant that was clearly more virulent and was defeating the vaccines and all this stuff, I might say, okay, some of this is warranted. Let's adopt that kind of a tone because you want to modulate and, and convey correctly to the mm-hmm. audience the seriousness of something. You know, that's true of any story, especially, you know, of something like this, a pandemic. The tone in much of the press on Omicron has been maybe not hysterical, but very sort of uh, serious and concerned and sort of the, you know, the scary music and all this stuff, furrowed brows, all this. And do you think it's gone overboard? Is part of it, it's a huge story that, and you want to suck people in to read and watch, and so you kind of play up the threat, even if you have a few, you know, to be sure, as we don't blah, blah, blah. But that's the thing. There are a lot of caveats. Uh, for example, New York Times, Washington Post had these headlines about world on alert and too late for travel bans and so forth. There's also a lot of news to cover about the travel bans, about impact in other countries, about uh, just what we know. And then we don't, the problem is we don't know much about how deadly this could be, how quickly it's going to spread and so forth. But And the from, early indications have been actually pretty that, encouraging. Right. And let's hope that that proves to be the case. Right. But this reminds me of the dilemma faced by the media in the early, early days of the pandemic, how much do you play it up? The sheer volume of the coverage, even with the caveats, even with those who are trying to adopt a more restrained tone, when it's leading the news hour after hour, front page headlines and all of that, um, it's scary. It does fuel the fear. And we may look back two weeks from now and say, boy, that was a total overreaction. Or we may look back and say, yeah, this was pretty serious business. The Delta variant certainly uh, proved to be a, a very concerning surge that that, that uh, multiplied the number of cases here in the United States. So I think I'm seeing efforts at restraint, but it doesn't matter because of the collective volume, mm-hmm. both, I mean, high decibel yes. and frequency of the media coverage guy. Howie Kurtz, his program is Media Buzz every Sunday morning, 11 a.m., on Fox News Channel, his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, his Twitter handle, at Howard Kurtz. Always great stuff. Looking forward to seeing you on Sunday, Howie. And uh, happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Great to see you. It's great to have you here. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. So there is an interesting exchange today that probably fueled, at least partially, the market sell-off that we're seeing. The Dow is currently down just about 700 points. Pat Toomey, Republican from uh, Pennsylvania, U.S. Senator, asked Chairman Powell about inflation. Here's the question from Toomey, cut 14. Under the Fed's new flexible average inflation targeting, the inflation target Remains at 2%, but now it's on an average over an unspecified time frame. Core PCE, the Fed's preferred inflation metric, is running about above 2% over the past five years, nearly 3% over the past two years, and 4.1% over the past year. So it's above target, it has been above target, and it's accelerating. And yet the Fed has maintained an extraordinary emergency monetary policy stance. It, 
looks to me like this framework appears to be a weakening of the Fed's commitment to stable prices. Now, I know you believe this is transitory, but everything's transitory. Life is transitory. How long does inflation have to run above your target before the Fed decides maybe it's not so transitory? Response from Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, cut 15. First of all, the, the, the test that we've articulated, I think, clearly has been met now. Uh, you know, you, you're absolutely right. Inflation has run well above 2% for long enough that uh, if you look back a few years, inflation averages 2%. So I think, I think we can say that that, that is taken. It was not the case going into this episode. It had been many years since we had inflation at 2%. Um, so I think the word transitory has different meanings to different people. To, to many, it carries a time, a sense of, uh, of short-lived. We, we tend to, 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 to ha- use it to mean that it, that it won't leave a permanent mark uh, in, the, in the form of higher inflation. I think it's, it's probably a good time to retire that, that uh, word and try to explain more clearly what we mean. Time to retire the word transitory when describing the inflation problem in this country. He also said that it looks like there will be inflation at least through the summer, i.e. the summer of 2022. Right. It's still the fall of 2021. So if he's right about that, because he said some of these issues are still plaguing our country and there are sort of like a root causes that will remain in place by the Democrats are trying to spend trillions more dollars in the middle of this. He's guessing into the summer, maybe beyond. So uh, that is not good news if you're the Democratic Party. You have to hope that he's wrong and that you can start using that word transitory again, even though he just tried to retire it. Next hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Dr. Mark Siegel on the new variant. What do we know about the vaccines and the variant? We will ask him straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Middle hour here on this Tuesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. Fox News alert as we move into our middle hour. The Dow just pummeled today. Down 652 points at the close. Dow ending the day at 34,483. And that would be COVID fears, inflation worries, fueled by comments from the Fed chair that we played in the last hour. And the market's obviously uh, spooked. And you can understand why, certainly on the inflation side of things. Should they be spooked on the COVID side because of this new variant, Omicron? Let's ask our next guest, Fox News medical correspondent, Dr. Mark Siegel, author of the book COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science, at Dr. Mark Siegel on Twitter. Doctor, great to have you back here. Guy, great to be back with you, and I'm glad you're feeling well. But Thank you. I, I don't, I, I, I've been following you, and I'm glad you're well. But I don't actually think we need to be afraid of this at all. And I think in the setup to bringing me on, you explain why. You know why the Dow's going crazy? It's because of the uncertainty, the uncertainty principle. Because our brains are hardwired to fear. And as soon as we're ignited, we jump to the worst-case scenario, thinking it's going to be us. Uh-oh, here comes Omicron. What did they say? 
We don't know how severe it is. What did they say? We don't know how transmissible it is. Where did it come from? Oh, no. Where is it going? You know, is it here and we don't know it? All of that, we jump to this red hot. And here's the cruelest thing of all, Guy. You know what the cruelest thing of all? People probably realize they're just hardwired. They're just hijacking us. They're jump-starting us into fears that, that have been placed in there over the last two years. We've been through yeah. this already. So my reaction to the new variant was just sort of wait and see. And people were saying, well, we don't really know. We need to answer these questions. So we made an effort based on everything that I have read to answer some of those questions yesterday. We had another doctor on. Dr. Manny was on yesterday. We talked a bit about this with him. Let me run through these questions. These are, to me, the core questions about to the best extent and the the best information that we have at the moment. Question one is, do we know if it is more transmissible than Delta, for example? Do we know that yet? No, but let me give you an answer that will satisfy you. That answer depends on how long it's been around. And my feeling is, and what I'm gathering from the experts I'm talking about, plus that I've studied pandemics for 20 years, my feeling is it's been around a lot longer than we, than we think. And if it's mm-hmm. been around a lot longer than we think, then it isn't as transmissible as you might think. In other words, if, if I paint the scenario and I say, this came out of nowhere, bang, it's everywhere, it sounds pretty transmissible. But remember, those people who got off the plane in the Netherlands Two-thirds of them had the Delta variant. Twenty had, the, had, had, the, had Omicron. So it, it's probably been there. It just happened to be identified by South Africa, who we are now punishing for that identification. Thank you very much. So I, don't, right. I think it's been around. I don't think it's as transmissible than Delta. I hope I'm right about that. I don't think it's as severe as Delta. I hope yeah, I'm so that's, right about that. And I'll that's t- my next question. Yeah, yeah. Is it more... Is it more severe? Is it more virulent? We've seen hospitalizations ticking up in sort of the the ground zero uh, hotspot in South Africa, but the hospitalizations, while up, are not as high as they have been in previous waves. If we're at the beginning of Omicron, then maybe that doesn't tell us much. But if it's been around a while and hospitalizations really haven't gone up across the board over there, that that could be good news. And I, I, I think we just saw some officials in Canada saying that all of the known cases in Canada, uh, there's a handful of them that they know are in Canada. None of those people required hospitalization. None of those cases were terribly severe. Again, this is sort of a thin gruel so far, but we'll take it because it at least has some heartening early signs, at least to my eyes. Extremely well described by you. Bottom line, if, if it's been around a while and you're not seeing an enormous surge of hospitalizations, then it isn't a game changer. And I want everybody to understand that the word mutation scares you, but a lot of mutations go nowhere. A lot of them are not anything other than a genetic change that doesn't give you the monster you might be afraid of. And in this case, there's a number of mutations to the spike protein, which everybody knows that virus uses to attach to cells, but those might be dysfunctional mutations. We don't know. We don't well, isn't know it, that this... I was going to ask, yeah. isn't it possible, too, that some you hear mutation, and to your point that you made earlier, the human brain jumps to the worst, oh my gosh, mutation, that sounds bad, this is going to be worse. Viruses can also mutate in a way that actually is beneficial to humans, right? Like, it, it mutates to become less severe, right? That's also possible. 
not only possible, that's the way pandemics usually progress. And that's what happened in 1918. That's why the, the 1918 pandemic is called the 1918 pandemic and not the entire 20th century pandemic, because somewhere around 1919 or 1920, uh, it, it evolved into a less severe strain and became the yearly flu. And that's even without the help of a pandemic, without the help of a vaccine. And that's where this is going to go eventually. Let's hope that this is the variant that brings us there because viruses want to survive and they don't survive by killing the host. They don't survive by getting the host very sick. They survive by jumping from host to host and becoming milder. Viruses survive by becoming more transmissible and milder. The key question that every virologist is asking right now is, and this is very, very down-to-earth question, you'll love, Guy, can Omicron outcompete Delta? It's almost like a hockey game. Can it outcompete Delta? And if it can outcompete Delta, well, in other words, in other words, viruses are looking for hosts. If they're more transmissible or more contagious, if you will, then, then the one that's most contagious wins. That's what happens with the flu every year. The, the prevailing strain of flu is the one that's always the most contagious. If Omicron is more contagious than Delta, it will beat it off the same as Delta beat, Al- beat Alpha off. But if it's milder, we all win. So that's the thing. And the other thing we're keeping track of, which you're about to ask me, is about the vaccines. And that's I right. am talking to everybody. <laughs> I, I am talking to everybody about this. And the early signs are that, yes, there's going to be an immune response to this. We don't know to what extent and we're going to find out. But it, the, the vaccines will cover you. We don't know if they'll cover you as much as they have previously, but they will cover you, which is why you have to get boosted if you haven't been. Okay, so let's uh, let's stop there for a moment. We'll get to the boosters in a second. But on the vaccine question, that to me was the third big question, which you anticipated. What's confusing to me, I don't know if you've seen these statements, and they may not, if you really, really parse them, they may not be totally contradictory. But you have the CEO of Pfizer who was saying, you know, we, we anticipate protection. And then the CEO of Moderna who's been sounding a little bit more dour and concerned and saying, you know, the scientists are telling me this is going to be bad. Uh, you know, we're not sure. This, this could be a, a struggle uh, for this to work um, against, you know, for these vaccines to work well against Omicron. Am I, am I missing something here? Because it sounds like, at least with the headlines, that these two CEOs of these huge pharmaceutical companies that have developed these amazing vaccines, they kind of sound like they're saying opposite things. Yeah, I, I caught that, too. I talked to Gottlieb today, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner who's on the board of Pfizer, and he point blank said to me, we're going to have an immune response. We don't know to what extent yet, but we're going to have an immune response. And, and let me parse that out for you. He's talking about neutralizing antibodies. And if we get any neutralizing antibodies in response to this virus, those are the antibodies that we all look for that, that bind to the virus and keep it from getting into your cells. But here's the thing. There's more to immunity than that, as you know. There's B cells and memory B cells and T cells. And if you have neutralizing antibody to some extent, you got those other cells, too, and you're off to the races. Pfizer is sending out signals. You're correct that they think that this is going to work. I'm also in touch with people like Paul Offit and Penn and Mark Bosnanski at Harvard. These are vaccinologists that are studying this with a pseudovirus and the, and the spike protein from, from Omicron. Omicron and they're seeing positive signs so far. It's about a week before we're going to have the answer to that. 
I'm certain the answer is going to be that the vaccine protects you. But then we have to see after we're out of the laboratory, we got to see how it works in the real world. The laboratory studies are going to show that it has some protection. I'm certain of it. I'll tell you why, by the way, not only because of what I've heard through my sources, but also because if, even if I tell you there's 32 mutations to the spike protein, which is what the vaccine targets, 95% of that spike protein has not mutated. And that, that's a very good indication that it's going to respond to the vaccine. Okay. Now, boosters, we saw, was it just yesterday, the CDC saying now everyone 18 and older should get their booster shot. So they've sort of expanded it out and they recommended, you know, these people should, these people might consider. Now they're saying if you're 18 up, everyone should get boosted. So what's the rule of thumb here in terms of when people should get boosted in terms of, you know, how far out from their second shot? And then for someone like me, you know, I talked to my doctor. I'm not planning on getting my booster yet. I'm going to wait for some time and look at more data because I had COVID, right? So I, I got my shots. Then I had COVID. And my doctor was recommending at least wait for six months after you had recovered from COVID. And then, you know, then consider a booster. We'll talk about it then. What should people think about in terms of the timing of the booster shots? And why are you recommending, as is the CDC, that everyone go and get them? Well, I did, I did recommend something slightly different in my op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I suggest everybody gets them over the age of 18 who, ha- who didn't have COVID. For those who have COVID, I kind of believe, like Guy Benson here in Israel, that, the, that natural immunity from infection counts for something. And to be shorthanded about it, I like to say it counts for one shot. Israel, actually, in terms of the Green Pass, will give you six months for, for that natural immunity from COVID before they tell you to get a vaccine at all if you prove it through a PCR. So they're even more liberal-minded, if you will, uh, probably wrong word, uh, regarding this. In the United States, we totally ignore this issue, and we shouldn't be. So Guy Benson, I'm not your doctor, but I would probably think that you would wait, too. I would probably agree with your doctor on this. I, I think people who have gotten over COVID and had the full vaccine series probably don't need a booster right now unless they're immunocompromised in some way. But otherwise, they're fully protected, probably more than those who have had the vaccine and the booster. Natural immunity adds something to the picture. We don't want it. Believe me, we don't want it. But the combination of a vaccine plus having recovered from COVID gives you a substantial immunity. And I I guarantee you it will help you against this new variant. Okay, that was my next thing I was going to ask. Natural immunity is great in the sense that when you combine it with the vaccine protection, I'm sort of got, you know, the the super antibodies. But if you've got this new strain or the new variant, are we as confident that natural immunity will remain robust? It's kind of the same question as I asked about vaccines, but for another type of immunity. I I, I think I think it will remain robust because I think that the problem was we gave the Pfizer vaccine too close together. And I was one of the ones who said, do it that way, because that's how it was studied in clinical trials. In retrospect, it was too close together. And and so the body's immune system didn't get a chance to properly seed itself. And the, and the third shot I think is giving, and studies are showing that it's giving more neutralizing antibody than the first two. So I think that it puts you in a much better place having the booster than you were after the second shot. I'm predicting that it lasts longer, but for those of you out there that think it's a, some kind of a mathematical game, I, which I don't think anything, anybody thinks this is a game, but you know, I want you to know there's other vaccines coming down the pike, guy, that are very exciting. They're working on vaccines that you might be able to inhale, 
vaccine you might be able to take as a, orally, vaccines that might cover more than just a spike protein so that if variants come out, they'll cover, they'll cover that, and vaccines that will last longer. I think and also that therapeutics, the, right? That, There's the, Some of the therapeutics are coming out in pill form and that kind of thing that will help treat COVID in addition to the monoclonal antibodies, although I've heard some reports that the, anti, the antibodies, the monoclonal antibodies may not be as effective against the new variant, but that's only one tool in the toolkit, right? I agree with everything you just said. I think the monoclonals might be problematic against the new variant. Uh, that's not been proven yet, but I'm concerned. I think the oral drugs are very exciting. I'm a little bit disappointed in the recent data from Molnupiravir that's coming out over the next few days. I like the Pfizer drug a little bit better. That's the, what we call a protease inhibitor. Very, very effective for HIV. This is another virus similar to HIV. It's, an, it's a, called an RNA virus. Similar. I think the protease inhibitors are going to be the future here. I think we got to get a rapid test kit in every home in America. You take the test. You know you're exposed. You turn positive. You take a pill. You feel better. That's where we have, where we almost are. If the Biden administration would pony up these tests, by the way, which they've completely been asleep at the switch here on these testing issues. Last question, Dr. Siegel, 30 seconds. If there's someone who's gotten both of their shots and they're like, look, I did the thing. I got my shots. I don't want to go get a booster. I'm sort of done with this. What would be your, your 20 second pitch to that person? Why they, in your opinion, probably should go get that booster? And by the way, J&J should be after two months. I would simply say, if you don't believe Israeli data, look at the VA study here in the United States of over 800,000 people that showed a tremendous waning of a protection, immune protection, after six months with all three vaccines, two months on J&J. And then look at Israel. After the boosters, people didn't get sick. They didn't go back to the hospital. They had a much milder case or no case. This data is clear. Get a booster. Dr. Mark Siegel. He's the Fox News medical correspondent. He's on the show frequently. His book is COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science. Dr. Siegel, thank you very much. Guy, I hope your sense of smell is back. Oh, it's it was gone for about a day and a half, and that was in August. So I've, I've been uh, healthy and happy ever since. Always appreciate it, doctor. We're going to quickly step aside. We're up on a break. We'll take it. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. One other note on the boosters, the booster shots. And we are pro-vaccine here. We are pro-booster. Talk to your doctor. I'm delaying mine based on my doctor's recommendation because of my breakthrough case, conferring immunity. But talk to your doctor, and I think your doctor will likely tell you what you just heard from Dr. Siegel. Why it's a good idea to go get a booster shot. And if you're not vaccinated yet at all, why it's a good idea to go get vaccinated. What is interesting is that some people not that long ago, when the boosters started to get developed and recommended, some people started predicting that the definition of quote-unquote fully vaccinated might start to shift from two shots to three, or one to two in the case of Johnson & Johnson. One of the people who made that prediction was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and he was immediately fact-checked. By the fact check industry, we talked about that with Mark Hemingway a few weeks ago. News media, here's one headline, for example, fact check. DeSantis falsely claims vaccinated citizens without boosters could be declared unvaccinated and lose their jobs. Well, hold on just a second. 
you can't fact check a prediction. Right? DeSantis didn't say that people without boosters are declared unvaccinated. He was saying that they could be, meaning this could be coming. That's the way the English language works. That's, you know, words have meaning. But these fact checkers who are ever eager to fact check Republicans, especially him, especially DeSantis, the media always piles on that guy. They're scared of him. They decide to fact check his prediction and say it was false, predictably. And now you're starting to see a growing call for exactly what DeSantis predicted, including Dr. Fauci saying that that might end up happening. So can we fact check him again? Can we go back and fact check the prediction? Get a mulligan on that one, maybe? A redo? Don't hold your breath. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. On this Tuesday, thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free if you miss any of the program. Joining us now is Matt Finn, Fox News national correspondent. He has been all over the Jussie Smollett case since the very beginning. We've had him on the show now really for years talking about the various twists and turns. And it seems like we may be approaching a denouement. With the trial underway, it started yesterday in Chicago. Matt, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Guy. All right, so give us the latest. What happened yesterday? I know there was jury selection and some opening statements from the attorneys on both sides. What did we learn yesterday, and what are we seeing today? Well, in opening statements yesterday, the special prosecutor, Dan Webb, he repeatedly told the jury that Justice Smollett's incident was a, quote, fake hate crime. He kept using the word fake over and over again. And he also told the jury that as a black gay man, Justice Smollett denigrated real hate crimes. Uh, the prosecution also telling the jury that Smollett initially sent a fake hate letter to himself to the Empire Studio where he worked here in Chicago, and that he was upset that that letter didn't get enough attention so then he hired the two Osendaro brothers to pretend <laughs> to be him, and they are expected to testify. Uh, and in court today, the lead Chicago police investigator testified that they treated Jesse Smollett as the victim of a hate crime. They spent more than 3,000 man hours investigating his case, pouring over 1,500 hours of video and putting up to 26 detectives and officers on the case. And ultimately, they concluded that Jesse Smollett staged a fake hate crime here in Chicago. And he was rather unhelpful with investigators, right, at least to a certain extent, which was probably somewhat suspicious to them. Yes, uh, the lead investigator testified that he asked for their cell phone data, which they said would have perhaps helped them um, track uh, the location of anybody who was trying to stalk him, taking any you know, uh, text messages, any emails. Uh, they also asked for what they considered standard evidence, which is a swab of his cheek. They said that they could have taken DNA from the inside of his cheek and then tested that against any DNA that was perhaps on the noose they found around his neck. And um, they also asked for medical records. They said Justice Smollett did not comply with any of that. They did not turn over any of that uh, evidence. Uh, and the prosecutor said that, that it's very unheard of. Police say that's very unheard of a person uh, who says they're a victim of a hate crime not to comply with what police are asking. So he sent himself a hate letter and was annoyed that that did not raise enough of a fuss or a ruckus. So he escalated to the fake hate crime, which, of course, got a lot of attention and people rushed out to declare it real and him a victim and all these things. It fell apart pretty quickly The evidence, Matt, seems just overwhelming in this case, which is why so many people were irate when the previous prosecutor 
made this deal, sweetheart deal with Smollett, where he basically got off scot-free for his lies and all the wasted resources in Chicago and all of that. And that's when the special prosecutor intervened because there were people asking ethical questions about the initial deal. But now that the trial is underway, a lot of the experts that I've been reading and legal experts talking about this case say that it's just a mountain of evidence. It's devastating for the defense, for the defendant. What is the defense arguing? Like, what is their pushback on this? What are they trying to sell the jury? Well, the defense told the jury yesterday in its opening statement that police rushed to judgment. Well, today, fast forward, the chief investigator has been testifying for hours. He's getting into extreme detail about all the police work they did, you know, how they use all surveillance cameras around Chicago to show that Justice Smollett picked the brothers up to do a dry run of the attack. You know, it shows Justice Smollett's Mercedes driving, leaving from his house, driving to the Osandaro brothers' home, uh, then coming back to his house. Uh, they, they show text messages. There's a text message where Justice Smollett sent one of the Osandaro brothers saying, hey, I, may, I need your help on the low. Can you meet me face to face? So right now the police are on the stand. They're testifying, showing all the lengths they went to to piece together their case. And they said, hey, from the start, we treated him like a hate crime victim. Here is everything we have laid out for you. We concluded uh, that he staged this attack. Also, the defense saying that actually their opening line yesterday to the jury was um, that there's an elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is an assumption uh, that all of this is an assumption and that police rushed to judgment. And police right now are on the stand testifying, saying we absolutely did not rush to judgment. Here is our entire case. We're going to lay it out there for you step by step. I mean, it seemed like a risky thing for the defense to go with the cops rushed this when there's so much evidence to the contrary. But in the defense of the defense, they don't really have much to work with here, right? Because there's so much proof on the other side of the ledger. Are they leaning at all into the identity politics? I know that they're trying to play up some personality conflict, saying that these brothers hated Jussie Smollett. So that's why they're doing this sort of thing. Are there any other tactics that they're deploying? Because I know that, once again, they are referring to Jesse Smollett as a victim here. Yes, the defense is saying the Osindaro brothers are, quote, sophisticated criminals who did not like Smollett, that they had guns and narcotics uh, in their apartment, and that ultimately, you know, they were friendly with Smollett, so surveillance is going to show them, quote, hanging out, surveillance is going to show them in each other's cars, and that Smollett cut a check for $3,500 to pay one of the brothers for training. So the defense is trying to say these guys are sophisticated criminals. They were basically jealous of Smollett. They didn't like who he was as a person, so they carried out this attack. As far as the identity politics, the prosecution, uh, several times yesterday did say that Justice Smollett uh, intentionally, um, you know, staged an attack at the hands of Donald Trump supporters. So I think we might hear more about the fact that Smollett maybe was trying to smear the president or is trying to be the victim of perhaps alleged racists or Donald Trump supporters. Yeah, certainly smearing Trump supporters. I mean, that was absolutely part of it. I think Smollett decided that if there was a Trump aspect to it, it would definitely get attention. It wasn't just a hate crime in the middle of the freezing cold night in Chicago on his walk back from a subway shop. Uh, it was also a politically motivated crime because I guess these uh, these horrible people knew that he was famous and knew that he was critical of Donald Trump and didn't like the fact that he was black and gay. So they came after him for those reasons. Of course, he knew the attackers and paid them uh, and they were black. So it was quite uh, quite a sort of galaxy brain plan here from Jesse Smollett, and it's all being laid out meticulously in court. I do wish it were televised. I would 
absolutely be watching this if I could. Instead, we rely on the reports from people like Matt Finn, Fox News national correspondent on The Guy Benson Show. Matt, we will check back in with you as the trial progresses. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right, a few more things to say about this case. And I mentioned this actually on Gutfeld last night. It is one of my favorite news stories in recent years because it is so spectacularly stupid on Smollett's part. He obviously wanted a bunch of attention. He wanted to be a victim. So he invented a crime of which he was the quote-unquote victim. I think it speaks to the weird, perverse incentives in certain elements of our society to be a victim. It wasn't enough for him to just be a successful, rich, black, gay actor. He also had to be a victim on top of that, so he created this entire string of events and did so with truly remarkable incompetence. And at some point, you just have to laugh, right? It's not funny what he did. It's not funny that he was wasting precious police time and resources and investigatory efforts in a city that really needs to focus on other crimes elsewhere. None of that is funny, which is why he deserves to be on trial. And I hope that he's convicted based on the overwhelming evidence being presented here. But there are certain details that are funny, right? That he paid his attackers with a personal check. That's funny. That he had this weird noose that made no sense in the context of this attack. That is also kind of funny. And then there's this, which I had not learned until yesterday. I did not know about this. The Chicago Tribune reporting on the case and opening arguments. And here was something that at least to me was a revelation from the prosecution. And now I'm quoting. Quote, I want you to attack me, but when you hit me, I want you to kind of pull your punches a bit because I don't want to get seriously hurt, the prosecutor said. That's what Smollett told the brothers. Smollett also instructed them to put a rope around his neck to, quote, make it look more like a lynching, more like a hate crime. So he's like, let's uh, let's do an attack, but please don't really punch me that hard. Right. I want to get beaten, but not really. I want to get the attention of an assault, but let's just uh, go easy on the on the assault. And then there's this. This is the part that I did not know before. The three men went on a dry run before the attack, part of which was captured on surveillance camera, the prosecutor said. Smollett's Mercedes can be seen circling the Streeterville intersection, showing the brothers the area where he wanted the attack to occur. So this guy took his personal trainers, these brothers, bought them hate crime stuff, paid them to do a hate crime, the very nature of which made absolutely no sense, as I alluded to before. It was like negative a thousand degrees at, what, two o'clock in the morning in Chicago. He goes to get a sandwich. And this is when all bundled up, he is recognized was like a crime of opportunity. What? It's just so dumb. And then when he's trying to say, oh, no, these, these are just sophisticated criminals and they they hated me personally and all this stuff. And I really am a victim. There's video of him doing a dry run with these guys. 
the day before. It's like, all right, guys, hop into the old uh, Mercedes-Benz here. Uh, let's take a spin. All right, so I'm going to be walking over here. And this is where I want you to attack me, but not too hard. A little punch, but, you know, uh, go easy. And then we'll come this direction, and that's how it's going to work. And it's on camera. And then the next day, it's like, oh, you know, look at this shock. Look at this horrible crime that has been perpetrated against me. Call the police. Look, officer, look at this noose. Okay, God, can we get your phone? Can we get some detail? Oh, no, 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 you can't have those things. I wonder at what point Jussie realized how catastrophically he had failed in the planning, in the execution, all of it, right? When did he have the moment, right, where it dawned on him that there were all sorts of pieces of evidence that were not going to work well for him? Like, was there ever a moment where he internally started to panic and say, maybe I should just admit to this and apologize? Like, I want to know what was going through his head when the police were being called. Like, are we really doing this? Like, you're going up the roller coaster, click, 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 but you don't have any sort of harness protecting you, and you're just about to go flying down the other side. There is, like, a tiny part of me that feels bad because there's got to be something... I don't know, off about someone. All the fake hate crimes, all those hoaxes that happen, and they happen way too often. It's very strange. I feel a little tiny bit sad and sorry for these people who decide to do this, who decide that their life is so empty and meaningless that they must concoct a crime committed against them to find some sort of meaning and to affirm some sort of narrative that they believe must be true about their lives and they believe it so fervently, often for selfish reasons, that they decide to make the fake reality become, quote unquote, real. But any inkling of empathy just gets overwhelmed with disgust. It's disgusting what he did. It's disgusting why he did it. It is hilarious how he did it. I hope it's a quick trial. Can't imagine what the jury would have to discuss when they get into their uh, into their deliberations. Can they be like, Your Honor, we don't need to deliberate. Can we just do a quick? Uh, we've been passing notes here. Let's. Uh, we're good to go. Let's uh, let's do the verdict and get out of here. <laughs> we're going to stay on the story because it's a big one. It is a fake racial political hate crime invented by a celebrity and a lot of people rush to believe it including if not especially our now dear beloved vice president who just uh, always gets things right doesn't she just have a nose for things she just has such great instincts in so many ways that Kamala Harris she was asked about this here's a flashback from the campaign trail as Smollett's story was falling apart she had put out this whole tweet in his defense gushing about him, asked about it, and with her typical winsome, smooth, quick-thinking, political savvy, she responded this way, cut 11. 
Which tweet? What tweet? Uh, the, about uh, saying that it is a modern-day lynching that... Um, uh, Sorry. <laughs> yes. Jesse Smollett. Um, Okay, so I will say this about that case. I think that the facts are still unfolding, and um, I'm very um, concerned about, obviously... Well said, Madam Vice President. Nailed it again. Kamala and Jussie. What a world. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. So I wanted to do an update here, and it pertains to Woke Tales. Woke Tales. We recently told you a story out of Coastal Carolina University where a professor was suspended and taken out of the classroom because there was outrage over an email that he sent in which he correctly suggested that students are too sensitive about certain things, which stemmed from an incident just ridiculous where a certain group of progressive leftist students assumed wrongly that there had been some plan afoot to target or call out or something. They weren't quite sure what it was, but it definitely was racist because there were students of color, their names had been written on like a blackboard somewhere. Turned out that it was a student of color who felt isolated and wanted to get to know more students of color. So there was like a brainstorming session of who this person could meet. It was completely innocuous. There was no racial, certainly no racist element to any of it. But people assumed that it was a racist incident based on nothing, made a whole stink. When it was revealed that they were wrong, this professor was like, hey, you guys should maybe cool it a little bit and not go so crazy and not get so hypersensitive about this stuff without the facts. They called that a racist affront. And the school suspended the guy. Professor Stephen Ernest was his name. Now, the good news is, and here's the update, he didn't just lie down and take it. He fought back. There was a huge backlash. We talked about it here. And the group FIRE, F-I-R-E, which fights these types of free speech battles on campus, they are indispensable. They have put out a statement confirming a victory that this professor will be returning to his teaching duties. And the university has sort of backed down and tried to downplay the whole incident. They're backpedaling. He's going to be reinstated. And this is why you have to fight the mob. You cannot let the mob win. When you fight back with facts, you can win. You can beat them. And this is actual justice. So a happy update on Woke Tales that I'm very pleased to bring you. Congratulations, Professor. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour time on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour of today's program. 
GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. And Happy Hour is always sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Our friends there, we recommend it. It's delicious. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. TheLongDrink.com. Joining us as we kick off our final hour is Congresswoman Nancy Mace, a Republican of South Carolina, their first congressional district down there. And Congresswoman, it's good to have you. You've had a busy few weeks. I certainly have, Guy, and thanks for having me on as always. And I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Likewise. And I actually want to start there and we can get to the family feud that's ongoing, if you will, uh, in a little bit. But you had a memorable Thanksgiving, did you not? Memorable and meaningful. Spent Thanksgiving with our troops overseas in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. Uh, Many of our troops haven't been able to go home over the last two years because of COVID or have family come and visit them. And uh, it was a great experience. It was a bipartisan trip, uh, the first in two years from anyone in the House of Representatives. That's amazing. And it's got to be pretty cool to be giving back and serving those who serve. And then really the most newsworthy part of your trip was the stop in Taiwan. And give us the backdrop there of how that came to be. And I've seen a number of reports that the Chinese Communist Party really pressured you guys on both sides of the aisle to pull out of the Taiwan leg of the journey, not to go there. You, of course, said, uh, thanks for your thoughts, love your passion, but no, we're going. Give us some insight there. Yeah, it was crazy. Before we ever got on the plane from Korea to Taiwan, every member on the trip, and there were five of us, and uh, had a had a, a a very, I guess, blunt email from the Chinese embassy demanding we cancel our trip. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't take my orders from communist China, <laughs> and neither <laughs> did my Democratic colleagues. And so we Good. went anyway. Um, this was, you know, and while we were there, China increased its aggression on Taiwan. They had eight to 12 uh, warplanes that went up in the air, crossed over the imaginary boundaries between China and Taiwan, uh, showing that that aggression, that military aggression to Taiwan. And Taiwan is a friend and partner to the United States and many countries around the world. And this was this was nothing new. Previous to COVID, many delegations went to the Indo- visited the Indo-Pacific region. So this was this was not new. This was not like this was aggression by the United States. Uh, this is aggression by China. And uh, we're not going to listen to the Chinese on this one. That's, of course, the right thing to do. I wish some American companies, for example, and organizations and celebrities would get that memo because there are a lot of people who seem very willing to do whatever China asks of them so long as they can make a profit over there, which I think, you know, at some point I'm all for profits, but basic American values, I think, and Western values and just human rights, civil liberties, uh, being against genocide, like at some point those things need to win out. Uh, So hopefully you guys were setting something of an example. I wonder if some of the parties who need to pay attention were paying any attention at all. But you said you got that email. Were they kind of threatening, like, you know, cancel this trip or else? What did they say? It was threatening. It was blunt. It was unnecessary. It was uncalled for. 
And when you look at what's happening overseas, it's really sad to see so many countries, including the United States, just turn a blind eye to the human rights atrocities like the uh, the Uyghurs and the genocide happening in China, all because we don't want our iPhones to cost $5,000, right? And so uh, there are economic and non-kinetic ways that we can hold China accountable, taking our manufacturing elsewhere for starters. It doesn't have to be militarily. Um, our economies are so intertwined. If we have relationships with others outside of the United States and you know, more trade agreements, et cetera, with different partners around the world, then, you know, we can we can hold China accountable and make any military threat from them very expensive for, for China and nobody else. And that's what we should be doing. That's what we should be looking at into in the future. How was your reception in Taipei and wherever else you went? It was it was amazing. Uh, the president of Taiwan, she's a badass. She's smart. She's hardworking. Everyone we met was so grateful that we were there. And I had, you know, I had sort of this. I don't think it was controversial. I landed and I said, hey, I just landed in the, in the uh, Republic of Taiwan. But I had Taiwanese people come up to me with tears in their eyes, thanking me for this subtle but strong head nod to Taiwan's independence, freedom and you know, democratic form of government. Right. And so um, it was really an amazing experience to see how precious freedom and democracy is and what we need to do to protect it, not only here, but around the world. I was glad to see that there were Democrats on this trip. And sometimes big issues need to be bipartisan. What was their impression? At least, you know, what were you sensing from them? Because hawkishness against the CCP cannot be a partisan issue, right? We, we need work across the aisle on that front because China is not a threat to Republicans. China is not a threat to Democrats. China is a threat to the United States of America. A hundred percent. And I can't speak for my Democratic colleagues, but I can tell you the sentiment that I believe we all felt when we walked away from that trip and that experience and meeting with different folks while we were there is that when we put the division aside, when we show that we can work together in a bipartisan way on the world stage, that we can actually work together, um, we America is stronger because of it. And when America is strong, the world is strong. And that was one of the biggest takeaways that I have is that all this divisiveness that we're seeing, and, and it's on the fringes of both sides of the aisle. This isn't Republican or Democrat in nature. These are both parties that are causing this kind of division in our country. It makes us weaker as a nation. It makes the world weaker. But when we work together, you know, we show that strength. It weakens Russia and China, which is what we should be doing. That should be the intent in everything that we do. But we are ignoring that, and we are focused on things that don't make us stronger militarily or economically. We do not have our eye on the ball. Let's take our eye and cast it across to another situation right now, which is playing out mostly on social media, but you've gotten into it with a few of your Republican colleagues. Uh, It has stemmed from something that Lauren Boebert, congresswoman from Colorado, had said about Ilhan Omar. I'm no fan of Ilhan Omar at all, but she absolutely crossed a line. I guess she's apologized for what she said, basically suggesting or joking that Omar is a suicide bomber. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I prefer not to talk about very much on this show, but the congresswoman from Georgia, she attacked you and called you trash. You've now fired back. It's it's been going on kind of for hours at this point. Why did you choose to engage here? 
I'm not going to take BS from Republicans or Democrats. I'm not a fan of the squad. I've made very clear I've condemned Ilan Omar's anti-Semitic remarks over the years. I've condemned my Republican colleagues and they've been bigoted or racist or sexist. Um, I've done all of the above. And in fact, when I was condemning uh, Congresswoman Bobart's remarks, I praised her for the apology. It is rare when you see someone stand up and take responsibility for what they said, acknowledge it and apologize for it. We need more of that and not less. And then to have three days later to have, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene come after me like that. It's irresponsible. It's uncalled for. And, you know, now she's She's, uh, you know, she's lying, basically. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a liar, lying about my conservative record, saying I'm pro-choice and pro-abortion when I'm not. I've never have been. In fact, I voted to defund Planned Parenthood at every chance I've ever had. I voted for South Carolina's fetal heartbeat bill. I do have exceptions for women who've been raped or victims of incest because I was raped when I was 16. Uh, I had a very tough time when that happened. It was traumatic. It was devastating. I dropped out of school. I turned to drugs and alcohol. And it's very difficult to explain in words what kind of a devastating impact that kind of trauma can have on your life. But I made it. And I've made it my mission to also be an advocate and protect women who've been raped or children and women who are victims of incest. And for have Marjorie Taylor Greene lie about my record, I'm not going to take it lying down. And now she's running to the principal's office to tattletale because she can't stand her own two feet. And I just have a zero tolerance policy for BS and for liars, even in my own conference, because I was elected not only to represent my constituents who happen to be Republican and Democrat, I represent a swing district, but I also, you know, vowed to represent my state and my country and put Americans first. And I'm just not going to, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm not going to put up with it. And I'm not going to be bullied by anybody, whether you have an R or a D by your name. We so, need strong backs and strong minds in this Congress. And I, I plan two, to, you know, intend to do just that, to be just that. Two questions on this. Uh, mm-hmm. One, has leadership intervened at all being like, hey, can we, can we stop with the food fight here? I mean, she came after you in a very personal way. Uh, is there any effort to kind of <laughs> reel this thing back in? I have spoken with leadership today, and there will be conversations again continuing throughout the day and maybe even the week. But, um, you know, there's no room for this in our conference or our party for people who decide to lie about other members in our conference. And uh, I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to be bullied. And, you know, that's just the way that it's going to be. I I just it's the way I've always operated, and I'm not going to be a doormat for somebody else. You know, she's a grifter. She lies to grift, and it's not okay. She is pulling the wool over so many eyes, so many vulnerable people, lying to them like she's fighting for them. She has no power. She has she's done nothing for America or the American people since she got elected to Congress. She doesn't have the ability to. Meanwhile, I'm passing legislation to help Gold Star families. I'm passing legislation that helps our national security. I just went on this bipartisan CODEL and 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 stood up to China. Like, this is the work that I was hired to do, and I'm doing that work. She hasn't done a damn thing since she got into office. Is there an argument, and I understand your point entirely, and she's been throwing punches and you're not backing down from the fight. Is there a point, though, where, I mean, she's, look, she's a nut, right? She does nutty things all the time. She loves attention. Her whole grift, as you call it, is attention. At some point, do you stop giving her the attention that she obviously craves? I I will at some point uh, when I feel it's the right time, but I never back down from a fight. And I'm not going to start now. And and everyone in my district, in my state, in the country needs to know this is not okay. And it's not going to be tolerated by me and a number of other people. So, you know, a lot of people are afraid. They're afraid to stand up to bullies. And I'm not. Uh, I've been bullied a lot throughout my life. And um, I'm just not I'm just don't have it in me to be a doormat for somebody else who's going to just lie to the American people. Last topic here. It's on 
President Biden. And we saw earlier today the chairman of the Fed say that we should probably retire the term transitory when describing the inflation issues that are happening and really hurting so many Americans across the country. The Biden White House, they were the ones using that term over and over again. It's transitory. It's going to be relatively quick. It's going to come right back down. That has not happened And they keep trying to spin this yarn that things are getting better and what we really need to do is spend trillions of more dollars. That's going to help fix everything. It seems pretty desperate and incoherent at this point to me. Yeah, and they're kidding themselves, right? I mean, they want to fight inflation with more spending. They want to fight inflation with more taxes, corporate and individual. They want to fight inflation with giving more loopholes to the rich. You know, it's just, it's going to cause inflation to worsen. And your hot wings, your hot dogs, your gas, everything costs more. I'm paying almost double now than what I did a year ago for gas when I go to the gas station, as is every other American. And energy is going to go up 10 to 15%, depending where you are in the country this winter. Um, You know, when you have this kind of policy, you've got to spend more to reduce inflation. Well, that's the actual opposite of what's going to happen. Not meanwhile, the Federal Reserve is printing all this money, again, adding to our inflation woes. And you can't spend your way out of this one because this is a reality that American people are going to see each and every day. Their wages are not keeping up with inflation. And it's going to continue to get worse as long as the Biden administration ignores the root causes of what's currently happening in the United States. Yeah, well, they're doing exactly the opposite, right, in terms of addressing root causes. They're inflaming the root causes. And I did see the transportation secretary just say the other day, oh, well, people can get electric cars and they'll save money on gas. They'll never have to pay for gas again. Well, first of all, those are very expensive cars that most Americans cannot afford. And there's also the whole thing of electricity rates. I mean, that fuel, if you want to call it, that isn't free either. And the cost of energy is going up in multiple ways. Another out-of-touch statement from the crew over in the Biden White House. Let's leave it there for now. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican South Carolina, we always appreciate your time. Let's do it again soon. Thank you so much, Guy. You bet, Nancy Mace. On The Guy Benson Show, Happy Hour continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. So there's a Twitter fight now about the Christmas decorations at the White House because we had the same fight, what was it, last year or the year before? Because everything that Melania Trump would do, the First Lady, had to be bad because the media and the left all hated her husband so much that she independently also had to be just attacked whenever possible. So they did their... Christmas decorations at the White House and everyone dumped all over them right in the media and on the left. Oh, it's so ugly. It's so tacky. I actually didn't mind it. I think some of Donald's tastes are questionable, right? Everything's gold everywhere, right? That's a, to me, that's a bit garish, if you will. I thought what she did was nice. But many people decided, oh, it's it's terrible. And other people remember she redid the Rose Garden, too. And people lost their ever-loving minds about that. You had news organizations saying, are these new bushes shaped like SWAT stickers? I mean, just crazy. People's brains were broken over the last four years. So now you've got Jill Biden, doctor, excuse me, Dr. Jill Biden. She's got her Christmas decorations up and they're fine. I guess they're honoring frontline workers Although if you don't get vaccinated, you're fired. But that's another question. 
They're honoring frontline workers. They've got the trees up and different. I mean, it's not all of it is exactly my taste, but I think it's fine. But then you have the backlash of the people who were mad about the criticism of Melania saying, well, this is ugly. Unlike Melania's like we can't even have a moment of peace over Christmas decorations at the White House. I personally prefer the so-called controversial Melania choices compared to Jill Biden's, the new first lady's choices. But I think they are perfectly acceptable in both cases. This did remind me of that audio, and I almost don't want to play it because it's so gross. The friend, remember this dear, dear friend of Melania Trump, secretly recorded her and then just like wanted a news cycle out of it. So released some of the audio and it was supposed to make Melania look bad. I thought it actually made her look better. I liked her more where she was complaining about being in charge of all the Christmas decorations and how much scrutiny it is and how much work it is. So she was kind of whining about it. In cut 12, this is what it sounded like. I'm working like a ass, my ass. I know. Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a f- about Christmas stuff and decoration, but I need to do it, right? <laughs> I actually love that. She's like, I mean, it's clearly this is a smart, accomplished woman. What does she speak? Like five or six languages, but it's her role in this administration, I get tradition over many administrations, the first lady, you do the decorations. She wasn't loving it. She made that clear to her friend who, like a total weirdo, was recording it and leaking it. There was no scandal there. And it made, I think this person obviously exposed her as a fake friend and just a a strange sort of sad person. And to me, it made Melania Trump relatable. I laughed at it. I thought it was hilarious. And the end product was good, despite what some of the haters say. And then Dr. Jill Biden, her version, also fine. That's my lukewarm take on the Christmas decoration wars. Oh, it's so stupid. We live in such stupid times. Survive them with me here on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in today. If you missed it earlier, I want you to hear part of this conversation that I had with Howie Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News Channel, Fox's in-house media analyst. And he had a lot to say about the Chris Cuomo scandal at CNN. Here's part of my conversation earlier with Howie. So... We obviously have to start this conversation about Chris Cuomo and CNN. We already knew some things that I think were troubling, ethically problematic. Troubling is your word. I agree about Chris Cuomo's conduct in the context of and vis-a-vis his brother and the scandals that his brother was battling as governor of New York. He's, of course, resigned from that position. We knew some things and they were bad. There are now some new revelations coming from text messages that reveal much deeper, I would say, ethical problems here. What have we learned in the last day or so? There's text messages. There's his own testimony 
to the state attorney general's office. And what we have learned is that he was knee deep. He, Chris Cuomo was practically on his brother's defense team, constantly texting uh, governor's top aides, offering advice. And here's what's troubling. Uh, here he is, CNN's top-rated host, which may help explain why nothing's happened to him so far, um, using sort of his street cred as a cable news anchor to call up other journalists and, quote, sources to try to gather intel on the sexual harassment allegations, who's got what, when's it being published, and in a couple of cases, Guy, uh, appearing to try to gather information about the accusers themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, all of which you should not be doing as a working journalist. There's a few things to really delve into there. One, you kind of glanced on it. One thing that I want to talk about is the extent to which he was very aggressively involved in the PR effort because the way that he had kind of portrayed it previously was, yes, I was on some of these, you know, phone calls and, you know, uh, we were having conference calls about certain things and it's sort of like a passive participant or whatever. No, no, he was drafting statements that appeared almost verbatim in some cases under his brother's name, all while portraying himself on the air as a journalist Meanwhile, his network is covering the story. He's not because of a conflict of interest, although that conflict of interest never stopped him from the glowing positive press, of course. Well, never stopped CNN from allowing him to do the Cuomo Brothers show. Exactly. So CNN not only allowed, they kind of encouraged and fostered that dynamic when it was good times for the Cuomo Brothers, bad times for the Cuomo Brothers, and the elder in particular. It's like, oh, well, we can't cover that on this show because there's a conflict of interest. That never made sense. He was drafting statements. He was, as you say, constantly texting some of these top aides. And then it's the digging and sniffing around using his journalistic, uh, not just job description and title, but his position to basically gather intel for the political operation of his brother when it comes to other journalists and what they were trying to report. So Ronan Farrow makes an appearance in some of these text messages. Uh, Politico makes an appearance. What do we know? He was he was trying to get not just information about who had what, but, you know, when allegations yeah. might drop. In the case of Ronan Farrow, for example, who was widely known was going to drop a big investigative piece about Governor Cuomo in The New Yorker, uh, he was friendly with Ronan, but he didn't want to go to him directly. So he went to a journalist friend of Ronan Farrow, was able to report back to the governor's top aide, well, the piece isn't running tomorrow. And he doesn't appear to have any more other than this one accuser who had already uh, gone public. That's a good sign, said Chris Cuomo. Mm. Uh, also checked out rumors about Politico. Uh, also was um, not only drafting statements for his brother, Governor Cuomo, uh, but critiquing and criticizing statements that was put out. For example, Charlotte Bennett was one of the high profile accusers when on CBS. Um, Chris Cuomo texted the governor's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, and said uh, that should never be put out. What he should have said was he should have apologized to her. So it, it seemed like he was so deeply involved that he was, in effect, part of the team. And when he apologized on the air last August, he said, I never made any calls to the press about my brother's situation. Well, that is flatly contradicted by some of these new documents that show that, yes, he did repeatedly. Right. He was trying to gather intel, not just about what other journalists were digging up, to then feed that back to help with, you know, sort of preemptive PR, damage control, whatever. He was also, one of the texts that was kind of disturbing to me was, and I'm paraphrasing it, 
I might have a lead. On the wedding girl. On the wedding girl. Yeah, the wedding girl was a woman who just three days earlier had told the New York Times that the governor had behaved sexually inappropriately to her at a wedding reception. So he's got a lead on the wedding girl. In the case of another accuser, I have some information. He forwarded some information about what happened to her in college. We don't know the details of these things. And so uh, this is a huge— Rapid response. Yeah, you know. uh, The CNN anchor, and they say he's not an opinion host. He's a news anchor. That is— they're well, conceived. he he's primetime. He is an opinion host. He was an anchor at ABC, and he was an anchor in his early career at CNN. But here's the dilemma for CNN and for Jeff Zucker, who was very close to Cuomo. They haven't done anything to him so far, no discipline whatsoever. So now CNN, the, 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 the revelations now are so much worse than what we knew previously, so damaging, that CNN was forced to say something. How so, much worse? Uh, Ten times worse, maybe a hundred times worse in terms of the magnitude of the effort. So CNN puts out this lame, tepid statement saying, well, you know, we're going to review this and we're going to have conversations and we're going to have clarity, not a syllable of we regret the appearance here or anything like that. So I don't know for all the pressure. You have some uh, critics of Chris Cuomo coming out and saying he should either be resigned or should be dumped, including liberal journalists, including somebody running for the Atlantic magazine who feel like the situation has become untenable. My full interview with Howie Kurtz is available online, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast, of course, is always free the entire show. No charge, on demand, after the show's over. We recommend that if you ever miss a minute. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, there's a cultural debate underway about headphones, like how you listen to music. And the team has decided to weigh in. And I think it's going to be fairly lopsided, but not completely. AirPods, yes or no, we debate straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. it's the Guy Benson Show, and we always cover the hard-hitting stories here on the program, especially in the home stretch. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast always free. Here's a headline from the Wall Street Journal. Are AirPods out? Why cool kids are wearing wired headphones. Humble retro corded headphones are making an unexpected return for both aesthetic and practical reasons. So here's how the story goes, and then we'll talk about it. Everyone wears AirPods these days, right? Since Apple launched the Bluetooth-enabled headphones in 2016, they've become an inescapable feature of daily life. Countless people walk around, chat, and run with those two little knobs sticking out of their ears. If you're among them, you may right now be considering buying a new pair, namely the third-generation version that launched last month featuring spatial audio. What is spatial audio? I don't quite understand it myself, but it sounds exciting. The prevalence of AirPods makes them critical to Apple's wearables business, which generated $38.3 billion in net sales from September 2020 to September 2021. In short, AirPods have become too widespread to be cool. So perhaps inevitably, contrarian trendsetters are reviving some ancient technology, corded headphones. Then they talk about fashionable young celebrities now going back to headphones with actual physical cords. So I would just like to say, for the record, that I guess this makes me a cool kid and a trendsetter because I never went to AirPods. I didn't like them. I didn't want them. 
I wanted the cord for various reasons. And so I'm really, if you think about it, a leader, a societal leader, a fashion leader, if you will. If you uh, caught some of our live stream earlier, I mean, I got the baseball cap and the pullover. It's it's a look. I'm a fashion leader. I, I'm actually not wearing my boat shoes, which I almost always do. It's part of my uniform. Sneakers today, in case you were curious. But these trendsetters, like step aside, Bella Hadid. I've been on the corded headphones train the whole time. I never left. Now, my husband likes the AirPods. For me, they there were a couple of reasons. They wouldn't stay in my ears. I've never liked Apple's headphones, even with the cord. Like, there's just something about the way they're shaped. It's just not, for me, I like Bose headphones. The little ones that pop, you know, right into your ear there. Sometimes that go over the top of your ear. I like to have them secured to my ear. Especially when you're working out. Like, I never understand how can these people, like, run where their bodies, you know, they're jogging and it's jostled all over the place. How do these things stay in? They didn't work for me, so I had no interest in them. That was number one. Not reliable for me. Number two, I am not a forgetful person. I don't lose things often or easily. There's just something about AirPods that I knew were eminently losable. Like, I just had a feeling they're expensive, that I would just, like, leave them somewhere, forget them somewhere. Wyatt, you had an unfortunate experience recently. Yes, Guy. This is now the second time this has happened uh, to me with my AirPods. I've, I've gone to two pairs at this point. I have washed them in the dryer, and they have uh, been fried. So you forget that they're in your pants. Into the wash they go, and then they're done. And it's happened twice. Are you done with AirPods or are you going to keep spending money and then destroying these things? I think I'm finally done. I think this is it. After reading this article, I think that um, it's just it's so expensive and unnecessary. They used to give them to you for free in the box, but now they don't. And there was one line in in the, the, the Wall Street Journal article that I really appreciate. And it was, a cord also projects a you can't sit with me factor that some people find appealing. And I do kind of relate to that. If I'm wearing headphones, it kind of projects, please don't talk to me and leave me alone. And I think that with the cord, that comes into play. It sends the signal more strongly and clearly, which can be helpful, for example, on a flight. If someone is a chatty Cathy and wants to strike up a conversation, and that's fine. I like friendly people. At a certain point, if you have to get some work done or you want to rest or something else, you would just prefer the conversation to uh, pause or or end. You can put on headphones, and I think the more dramatic that act, the clearer the message is. Now, Dan, you are a pro AirPods person. So you're like, you know, hold the phone here. There's not some new trend away from this. This is a quality product that you enjoy. Once wireless came into the scene, I never looked back. I cannot stand having wired headphones because, first of all, when you try to put them in your pocket or anywhere, they get all like you know tangled, and you can't untangle them. It takes like five minutes before you can use them. Second of all, I'm a runner, so when you're running, what do you do with that cord? It's just like hanging there, thwapping against you, and you don't know what to do with it. So once wireless came out, I love it. I do have to agree on AirPods, though. They do slip out. I do tend to get a little sweaty. 
when I run and they kind of fall out of my ears, and so that's kind of annoying. But Doesn't get, that defeat the purpose? That's that's why I'm willing to put up with the cord because the headphones stay in. Yeah. As opposed to like going flying out of my ears and you're looking for it on the ground, your run's interrupted. I feel like you're making some of my points for me here. I don't now. know, but then you also can like hit your hand on the cord and it rips them out of your ears that way too. I get that they stay attached to your phone. But I just think the connectivity with it is amazing, and I love it, and I'll never go back. Well, here's the thing that also does annoy me, and I like Apple. I have Apple products. I have an iPhone, but the new iPhones don't have a headphone jack where you can directly plug headphones into the phone itself. You have to get this adapter thing, and I have one of them, but I forget that. I should probably just leave it in my bag that I travel with, but that's annoying because I'll – you know, be on a train or I'll be traveling or whatever, and I want to listen to a video, and I don't have the means to do it. So I don't know if there's anyone at, like, Apple headquarters that listens to this show, maybe on the podcast, Apple Podcasts. Uh, please bring back the headphone jack, please, in the next iteration, although I keep my iPhones forever. Like, my last iPhone, I think I had for, like, five years or something insane. Adam would make fun of me for it. So I guess I'm stuck with this situation without the the plug, if they even bring it back, which I'm not sure that they will. All right, that's my little rant aside. All right, producer Christine, AirPods, yes or no? So I like the AirPods, but I keep losing them. Um, Bobby has said uh, this last go around, I'm just not responsible enough for AirPods, but I'm going to say this. I was chased in Penn Station, and I lost my balance, and that's why I lost one of my AirPods. So technically, it was not my fault. All right, let's okay, let's unpack this. You've buried the lead here. Who was chasing you in Penn Station? Bad man. No, really, like I, some just. I I don't know if everybody in America has, knows this, but New York City is not the safest right now. And Penn Station is pretty much ground zero for that. So if you're taking a train and you're going through, I literally got chased by somebody and I kind of tripped a little bit and then ran and uh, my AirPod must have dropped. Now, did you, I'm not saying this didn't happen, but it did. I, I'm just wondering, okay, Jesse, here's the thing. Sometimes you perceive threats that don't exist. For example, the disoriented, confused elderly woman on your block who was lost and asked for help and you screamed at her to get away from you because you were convinced she was part of a plot to kidnap you, uh, which is just deeply insane. Like, I can't help but wonder, were you chased or were you convinced that you were going to be chased so you started sort of running out of this paranoia and then sometimes when someone runs, other people are sort of like, oh, I'm going to run after them. I'm saying you may have instigated this incident. I mean, he was like looking at me really funny. And it just freaked me out. And I So you started to run. Were there other people around or was it like yeah, late no, at night? Well, no, 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 no. It was like noon. So there were no, not plenty even. of people. <laughs> no, it was like ten thirty in the morning. It was the middle of the morning. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and then in your haste yes. to get away from this person based on a look. You fell and you lost an AirPod. And were you so panicked that you simply abandoned the AirPod? Yeah, I, I didn't even realize I had lost the AirPod. And then I was calling Bobby to tell him 
Um, A, that I probably have the new variant, and B, I didn't even get to the point where I was chased because he hung up on me. This man deserves a trophy. So I had to go home and tell him last night I lost the AirPod. Uh, He, too, feels that it was probably overblown by me, Hmm. but he wasn't there. He doesn't know. So I have one. There's a pattern of behavior, right? I mean that's that's where it sort of well, comes from. Did you did you pay this man to chase you? That is you use a not personal check? funny. <laughs> that is not funny. I think it kind of is funny. Is there so a dry anyway, run the day before? Okay. Like, so, so you're gonna look at me this way. I'm gonna run. I might fall for dramatic effect. I'm just asking questions. I'm not, here, I'm that's not, all. I'm not playing into this. I was chased. I lost an AirPod. I'm going to be one of the cool kids now, going back to the uh, wired headphones. All right. Well, that's the final verdict in the case of Cookie Smollett. And we're out of time. Back here tomorrow. Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition. We'll talk to you then. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.